Amen. Would you, uh, as we do each week lately, for the last nine months, I think, join me in the book of Romans. Romans, we're in chapter 8. Been there three or four weeks now. We'll be, I'm sure, three or four more weeks. Um, Romans chapter 8. Well, if you have a Bible and in your lap or on your phone, even though the verses will be on the screen, uh, I really do encourage you to follow along uh, in your own copy of uh, the Word of God uh, with us this morning. Of course, you know by now that each week we do a little bit of a review. Uh, last week, we threw out a word called pneumatology, and that's not to, like you're going to be tested on that, and you knowing the man-made uh, label that we give that doctrine of the Holy Spirit, the study of the Holy Spirit, pneuma, having to do with the wind and breath and all of that. Um, spirit of a person, uh, you know, we can have pneumonia that you get. But uh, we're in a little bit of a study, kind of a three-week section of pneumatology, um, covering ten verses, verses 9 to 18. Last week we kicked that off. We made it up to verse 14. Here's what we're doing, okay? We're looking at seven things in these ten verses that the Holy Spirit does for all believers, So last week we looked at four. Next week we'll look at two more. This week we're going to look at one main thing. And so I'm going to invite you, whether you were here last week or not, as we begin to read, I'm going to read verses 9 through 15 today. And our main text will be verses 14 and 15 for our one main thought this week. But even as we do that, uh, I want to invite you, as we kind of quickly review last week, don't just call it being informed. Don't just be caught like, okay, yeah information really do this take your life and evaluate it beside the word of God not what Jeff says beside the Bible the Bible says this is true of a a believer in Christ and you'll be able to evaluate am I really a believer in Christ can I check these things not by my doing but is it is that evident in my life and is that evident in my life so again rather than I think reading all the way through our text like we usually do since the first five or six verses are review I'll, I'll read hit the thought, and then move to the second one and so forth, okay? Four things we saw last week that the Holy Spirit does. Check your life by this. Verse number nine. Previously, Paul said some people live in the flesh. That's because they're unsaved. Some live in the spirit. That's not like two kinds of Christians. That's only two kinds of people in the world. There's the unsaved and there's the saved. Paul makes it clear that those who are in the spirit are the saved, All of those who are in the flesh are in the unsaved category, and that's bore out in verse 9. He says, you, however, to this Roman church, you, however, are not in the flesh. The flesh doesn't mean skin here. It means that lowest part of our human nature that gives sin a chance. It's that part of us that loves sin. It's that part we're born with, our depraved, sinful nature. He says, you, Christians, the idea, believer in Jesus, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, check yourself, does the Spirit of God dwell in you? Say, I can't see if He does or not. And as I've said several times, some people think I might be one of those Christians who don't have the Spirit yet. Impossible. You either are Christian or unsaved. If you're Christian, you have the Spirit, because look at the middle of verse 9. Couldn't be any more clear. 
Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. I can't re-preach last week's lesson, but we looked at two words along with the indwelling. What does the Holy Spirit do? Four things. Number one, He indwells believers. God lives inside believers. And we kind of compared that with two other words, the baptism of the Spirit. Okay, that also happens immediately at salvation. It's not something we're waiting on down the road to make us an elite Christian. And we also talked about this filling of the Spirit. And that's for a person who has the Holy Spirit inside of them. He's in them, but now they give him themselves. And he controls them. And I don't even know if I emphasized this last week. I meant to. But when a person is filled with the Spirit, like every time in the Scripture, it affects the speech. It's like they don't say some things and they're bold to say certain things. It always comes out in the speech. Other ways, but... The speech will be affected because the Spirit indwells. Look at verse 10 and 11. Second thing the Holy Spirit does for us, He gives us life. Verse number 10. But if Christ is in you, we could say since Christ is in you, although the body is dead. The idea of the body is dead and is dying. I've said, told a young man Wednesday night, as I've said many, many times, I said, you don't know anyone 120 years old, and neither do you here this morning, nor those of you that may listen to this later on a recording. None of us know anyone 120. Why? We keep dying. We all die. Death rate's 100%. If Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. That's Christ's righteousness, if Christ is in you. Verse 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, so the spirit of him who raised Christ, if he's in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Can't re-preach it, but here's the second thing. The Holy Spirit gives us life. Now, in this life, he brings my spirit to life, have a body, have a soul, 1979, my spirit came to life, so he brought me into the realm of spiritual living, the spiritual living people. But my body is still going to die at some point. I have no idea when. Could be today. Could be 50 years from now. But your body is going to die too. But the good news is, in verse number 11, is if the spirit's in you, your dead body will also be brought back to life. So the spirit gives us life now spiritually, and he gives us physical life throughout eternity. Verse 12, the third thing we notice, 12 and 13. So the Holy Spirit dwells us, the Holy Spirit gives us life, verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors. We have an obligation is the idea, but not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. That's not our obligation. Verse 13 is where we spent quite a bit of our time last week. Let this sink in. This isn't Jeff. This is God's word. If you live according to the flesh, if that describes your life... You will die. You say, this life or next life? Yes. You will be dying. You'll live in deadness in this life, separated from God. And when you die physically, your soul and spirit will be separated from God. You will die. If that phrase describes your life. But if by the Spirit, if this describes your life, if by the Spirit, not just you on your own, if by the Spirit you put to death, that's a violent phrase, If you put to death the deeds of the body, what he means is those sinful appetites, you're killing sin, as John Owen said back in the 1600s. You will live. We kind of elaborated on that. What does the Spirit do? He sanctifies us. He, once we become a Christian, we're immediately different from everyone else who's not a Christian. We're different, but we're going to become more and more different. How does he do that? 
Kind of bore out some things. He identifies sin in our life. That's sin. Not only that, he helps us to hate our sin. Not calling it by little dainty protective names. Little soft tones. Well, this is my little pet area and God's okay with it. No, God helps us. The Holy Spirit helps us to hate our sin. And then he helps us to starve our sin mentally. Don't give it thought life. And then he helps us to feed our new nature in Christ, which is sin's enemy. And then one of the last things he does, he helps us actually take practical steps to cut sin out of our life. If that describes your life, you're a Christian. Say, I've been a Christian for 20 years and I have all the same sins that I had 20 years ago when I became a believer. You might want to check your life because it doesn't seem to match Romans 8. Look at verse 14. was the fourth thing, last thing we looked at last week. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. And that will kind of introduce us to this week. How does the Holy Spirit lead us? He leads us by conviction of sin. He teaches us the, the Scriptures, helps us make sense of them. I challenged you, if when you read the Bible or you hear teaching or preaching, if it never makes sense to you, you might want to check yourself because the Holy Spirit teaches us. i got a lot of questions about Scripture, but I'll say, He's brought things to life. Sometimes I'm reading my Bible, I'm like, don't know what that means. Keep plugging along, and sometimes he withholds some answers, but then other times it's like it starts jumping off the page. And hopefully that happens with you here this morning or in life group time. That should describe your life if the Holy Spirit's inside of you. So I want to emphasize this leading, this indwelling, this giving us life, and this sanctifying us. That is not for elite Christians. Oh, that's for the elite. That's for everybody. Does that describe your life? Now, look at verse 14 and 15, and we'll find the fifth out of seven things we're going to look at. Verse number 14, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God, for you did not. So, Christian, take this personally. The Bible says you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Oh, saved out of slavery. Uh Uh-oh, you got to live in fear because you may lose it. We're talking about security, really. I'm not going to emphasize that today, but that is underlying this whole thing. Oh, I got saved, but I'm fearful I might lose my salvation. Wrong, wrong, wrong. Paul's saying, you did not receive the spirit of slavery. Like, you've got to keep yourself slave, uh, keep yourself saved. You did not receive the spirit of slavery to to fall back into fear. That's the old life. You have received the spirit of adoption as sons. By whom? What's that phrase? You've received the spirit, the Holy Spirit, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. That's our text. So what's the fifth thing we'll look at today? The Holy Spirit seals our adoption. So we're going to be talking about this action that the Holy Spirit does today. That'll dominate our time. And it'll even carry over a little bit next year. The Holy Spirit seals our adoption. Do y'all realize that we do something like, and I know we've done it today and I know we did it last week. We did it Wednesday night. Do y'all know that we do something every single time we get together that no one did 2,000 years ago? No, no believers did this 2,000 years ago. You say, what is it? Look on screen, Luke chapter 11, verse number 1. Look what the Bible says. Now, Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, so Jesus is praying. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. Lord, what they're saying is, teach us to do that. You pray like no one we've ever heard. You pray differently. Please, John taught his disciples, will you teach us to pray? It's not specifically stated in the text, but I'm going to offer to you one of the main reasons I believe that his disciples wanted him to teach them was Jesus said something in his prayers they had never heard anyone say before in their prayers. What was it? 
Jesus refers to God as his Father. And that caught their attention. They had never heard anyone pray that way. I believe at least 14 times in the Old Testament, the parent-child relationship is referred to in the Old Testament, but it's always referred to as Jehovah God and the nation of Israel. Yes, Israel were the children of God, and you know Moses leading the children of God through the wilderness, and Jehovah God is the the father of the nation. But no one ever took, no one would dare take that knowledge and apply it to them personally, individually. Oh yes, he's the father of us all. No one would say, he's my father. That is until along comes Jesus and Jesus starts praying, Father, Father, Father. In fact, every recorded prayer in the New Testament that Jesus prays, every one of them except one, he always refers to God as Father. Father, and y'all know the one time that it wasn't, right? It's on the cross. He even begins his time on the cross. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. He ends his time on the cross saying, Father, into thy hand I commit my spirit. But in the middle of that, as he's particularly becoming our sin, he cries out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? So in that time, he's not the son of God. He's us. He's the son of man bearing all of our sin. But all the other like 25 times, Father, Father, Father. Now here's the kicker. We know what we know about Jesus. We say, Jeff, come on, dude, that makes total sense. Of course, Jesus is going to call God his Father. He's the eternal Son. It fits. They're one in nature. They're one in the same. Of course he's going to do that. But Jesus blows their mind when he turns and says, you want to know how to pray? You guys start praying, our Father. And i got to tell you, it doesn't seem to fit. I mean, you think about it. I jotted down a few things. Jesus, the Son of God, tells us we can become the children of God. And I'm thinking, the Son of God is eternal, and we measure our life in days. And it started just a few days ago. The oldest among us, just a few days ago, the eternal Son. He's completely holy. We are sinful. He's completely gracious. We are selfish. Our natures just don't match. He is almighty. Jesus is the almighty Son of God. We're weak and fragile. We measure our ability by our ability to influence people or pounds. How much we can do in terms of moving pounds or lifting pounds. That's how strong we are. We are so weak. We're the opposite. And yet, the only begotten Son of God tells you this morning, you can become the child of God by putting your faith in Christ. And if you do, then that change begins to come into your life. And now you will be eternal. And you will become holy. And you will become more gracious and less selfish. And you become a powerful, not all powerful, but you become a powerful being through the Lord. Two things I want us to look at. Actually, I need to give you a quick note. And this is because of the culture. Y'all know this. We live in a culture. It's very politically correct. And it's, uh, it's the proper thing, the proper attitude in our nation. And, and a lot of places around the world to think this attitude that, well, we're all the children of God. Can I tell you something? I would love it if everyone in here were, were the children of God this morning. I suspect that is not true. You say, no, 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 Jeff. Everybody's a child of God. No, they're not. According to verse number four, 14, look at it again with your eyes. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. So no, not all people, not everyone is God's child, but all Christians are God's children. And so today we have kind of two points to our message. And the first one's a little bit 
practical, historical. We'll not spend that long on it, and it's this, describing adoption historically. Describing adoption historically. I'm going to borrow a little bit from uh, William Barclay and John MacArthur, and really, I didn't even have to really mention their names, because most anyone who studied out adoption in the Roman Empire gives the same ideas. I just want to plant these thoughts, okay? 2,000 years ago, when Paul is, is writing this letter and the Romans, that's the title of the book, when the Romans read these verses, they would have had an immediate impression and appreciation and understanding of what he's trying to get across that I think we will miss if we're not careful. Here's what I want to get across to you. Adoption is extremely serious. And you hear that in some of you that are adopted or are thinking about trying to adopt or have adopted. And I know we have several of you right here in our congregation. You say, Jeff, come on, dude. It's extremely serious now. People's lives are in the balance. This really matters. Oh, I totally agree. But back then, it was even more serious. If it could be, it was even more serious. You say, why? It has to do with the power of the Father. The power of the Father in the Roman Empire, in fact, they had a word for it, a phrase. It was called Patricia Potestas. You can see some of the language, how it's carried over. You have a paternal test, Patricia Potestas, the potentate, powerful. That is very potent, putting these two together. It's the power of the Father. You say, what kind of power did a Roman father have over his children? It's called absolute power. That's why it's so important. A Roman father had absolute power over his children. Study it out. Especially in the early days of the Roman Empire. I think it changed and softened later. But literally, the early days of the Roman Empire, he had absolute power and control completely, even over life and death. An earthly father could have his son put to death and no ramifications, no repercussions, no one to answer to. He could have, I was displeased. Where's your son? I had to kill him. You did what? You can't lock him up. No, the Roman, hey, he has Patricia Potestas. He's very powerful. And so when you talk about meddling with that, moving someone out out from under their father's Patricia Potestas, absolute power, and putting them under someone else, is this a good thing? What's going to happen? They're, They're releasing their grip, and this one here is getting this absolute power over this person. That's what Paul's trying to get us to understand. I want you to get this. There's a reason we're taking just a few moments to look at the historical aspect. MacArthur writes the following. In regard to his father, a Roman son never came of age. Yesterday, uh, the last couple of days, I was able to spend some time with my father. He's 76, and I'm 47, and he's always going to be my dad, and I'm always going to show that respect. And a lot of people, here's kind of American mentality. I'm 16 now, and we're equal. I've lived, you know, we're equal standing here. In the Roman Empire, there was no such thing. A young man never came of age under. His father always had control over his life. MacArthur writes the following, and here's where it ties in with adoption. He says, if a father was disappointed in his natural son's skill or character or any other attribute, he would search diligently for a boy available for adoption who demonstrated the qualities he desired, unquote. And once that was found, then a ceremony would take place. He's available? Okay, I want to bring him in. I'm not really happy with my natural son. I'm going to bring this one in and adopt this one. What would happen? A ceremony that had two phases to it. 
The first phase was called mancipatio, and the second is called vindicatio. What is say, what in the world? Mancipatio is the first part of the ceremony done in a courtroom, and it severs the boy's legal and social ties to his former family. It is cut. What actually happens is a father, the father who has Patricia Potestas absolute power over his son and is ready to release that, what they would do is, I don't know why, but they would do a ceremony that had three parts to it. This father would sell his son and then buy him back. And then he would sell, and they would have copper coins, and they would have scales, and he would sell the son a second time and then buy him back. And the third time, he would sell the son, and this time he doesn't buy him back. And at that moment, this boy is out from under his father's Patricia Potestas. He, now son, now go over there and grab that. I don't have to anymore. You've, you go over there and you go out there and you, no, you've released me. And then at that point came in the vindicatio. In this step, the adopting father would go to the magistrate and make his case why this child will be put into his care and come under his Patricia Potestas. And we may talk a little bit about that next week because it involves some witnesses watching this part of the ceremony and he would bring him under himself. If you want to write these down, you say, what are the consequences? What are the ramifications once this child is moved from there to there? Once emancipatio and vindicatio, those two phases have been completed. At least four consequences of Roman adoption. Number one, here's what Paul wants us to understand. The adopted person lost all rights in his old family. He lost all rights in his old family and he gained all rights in his new family. In other words, for his whole life he always went home over there. Now you don't go home over there anymore. Listen, you don't go home over there anymore. Now you go home over here. You've lost all rights. Hey, they're going to receive that because they're in that family. You are no longer going to receive that. You're cut off. You're legally, socially. That's not your family anymore. Second thing, and these have overlapping, but to be specific, he became a legal heir of his new father's estate. Again, no more ties to the former, full ties to the new family a legal heir of his new father's estate. Keep moving. Third thing, by law, all this is a key thing, all of the old life of the person was wiped out completely, even their debts. In fact, they tell us that some people would seek to be adopted because they have so much debt. Would you please adopt me? That way I can get rid of my old life. It was literally as if a new person was born and someone just dropped off the face of the earth. They are no longer there. They're now over here. All of that life is gone. Hey, you owe me? No, I don't. They're done. That's gone. No more debts. And so to kind of tie it all together, the fourth consequence is this. The adopted person was seen by law as fully and literally the son of his new father. Now you've written that down. I'll not take time to drag this out, but can we leave that up for a moment? I want you to think about this. You say, what happened when I put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ? Spiritually, this is what happened. At that moment... The adopted person, that's you, Christian. You lost all rights in your old family. You used to go over there and used to hang out there and used to do that and used to live there. You don't go there anymore because now you have a new family, a new father. You're cut from that and you're immediately tied into that one. Legally, you became the heir of your new father. That line was in one of our songs that we sang this morning. That will be in next week's message, so I'm not going to really touch on that. 
But look at the third one. By law, you say, what happened spiritually? What does Paul want me to understand? All of the old life of the person was wiped out completely, even their debts. And that's what happened with me in 1979. Jesus took all of my sins, paid for all of my sins. There are no, I will never stand before God and give an account for my sins. You say, why? They don't exist. You say, what about the ones you haven't completed yet? Yeah, Jesus 2,000 years ago, according to 1 John 1, 7, the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. I never pay for that. I will never stand for that. They don't exist. By the way, if you hear that and say, well, man, I'm going to go out and just sin and live it up, then you need to go back and listen to our messages in chapter 6 and 7 because that is an attitude of a non-believer. And then we have become fully adopted and fully sons and daughters, literally, of our new father. It is a whole new person. Number two this morning, delighting in adoption. That's where I want to spend the rest of our time this morning, delighting in adoption. Would you look at verse number 15? Look at that again, verse 15. Paul says, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery. Remember that word, slavery. To fall back into fear. Slavery, fear. Paul's wanting to contrast two sets of words. Very clear, one's implied. There's three words given, but one's implied with the second set. So again, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So I want to ask you this morning. Here's your choice. Slavery, fear in the physical world, or sonship and implied freedom. Again, slavery, fear, Sonship, freedom, which one do you want? You say, okay, this is not a hard one. (laughs) I'll take door number two. I want sonship and freedom. I want to be rid of slavery, bondage, fear. I don't want that. Spiritually, slavery and fear because of the slavery to sin or sonship and freedom. Which one do you want? Second question is, which one do you have? You say, I want, I want freedom. I want sonship. That's the one I want. I'm asking you right now, which one do you have? You say, I have sonship and freedom. Do you? Are you sure? What makes you say that? Because of my third question, you say it's the same question as the third, as the second one. No, it's not. Here it comes. Which one describes your life? Which is it? You say, well, I want sonship and freedom. Which one do you have? I have sonship and freedom. Which one describes your life? Does sonship and freedom describe your life? Or does slavery, bondage, and fear describe your life? I think some people in this room this morning, if they were totally honest, this is what they would say. Jeff, I'm a Christian. I've been a Christian for quite a while, but I'm going to be honest with you. My Christian life feels like bondage. I've been there. I got saved when I was nine. I'm going to tell you, there were parts of my life that in some sense, not too heavy, but in some sense, bondage a little bit described my life, the feel of it. You say, I thought you said you were a Christian. How is that possible? I'm going to offer three things to you this morning. If you say that describes my life, I am a Christian, but just shooting straight with you, Jeff, I feel like the Christian life is bondage. That's just what I feel like then potentially one of three things may be true of you. Number one, you're saved, but you've received a lot of legalistic teaching. Some of you immediately upon hearing that, you say, oh, I've been there. 
You ever been there? Some of you be like, I have no idea what that means. You say, what does that mean? You become a Christian, but for some reason, those that become your religious advisors, teachers, preachers, your influence, it could be parents, whoever, they start teaching you that the way to become holy and godly and live the Christian life is by learning the laws and rules of the Bible and keeping those. And so where you thought you were getting saved into, into sonship and freedom, all of a sudden you find, okay, I've traded off that, and now I get this new, new yoke, and boy, it's heavy, and I've just got to try to live the Christian life. And you go through life scared all the time. And that describes somebody here this morning. Because you've received legalistic teaching. And really what I mean here, a lot of the times it's not just rules and commands that Scripture gives. Not just that. It's a lot of man-made things. And they usually show up in the externals. Men and women want to impose on other people how their hair should look. And how their clothes should look. And this is the acceptable music. You say, Jeff, is there no acceptable, unacceptable? I really do believe in my life that the, there is acceptable and there is unacceptable. But I don't need a man. If there is a man who's going to offer it, he should have some scripture and not just because uh, we have the good music here. Okay, what's the bad music and where is it? We have it. Don't worry. Don't ask questions. Just know that we have it and all the rest of them don't. Okay, and here's the sad thing. We go through life, okay, and we accept it. And I'll tell you, a little rabbit, what really confuses people is when they spend years and years under that leadership and then they die, and then the next leadership comes in and says, oh, uh, yeah, this is the acceptable. Huh? Well, wait, we were taught for a long time. By the way, some of us parents, have you ever had to do that? You raised your kids, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong, and now you do the very things you taught them years ago was wrong because you've now learned, oh, really, isn't anything wrong with that? See, a lot of us are going through the Christian life and we feel like we're in bondage, and the reason is man-made rules. Second thought might be happening. See, my Christian life feels like bondage. Maybe you're saved, but you're not following the leading of the Spirit. You're not following the leading of the Spirit. This is very close to the thought I just gave you, but if I could give a subtle difference, here's, here's what I wrote down the other day. Your mental emphasis is law, not spirit. Let me say that again. Your mental emphasis is law, not spirit. Listen carefully. You might end up the same place, but your way of getting there was the wrong mentality. I'll promise you this. The Holy Spirit wrote the Old Testament. He wrote every command in it. He wrote every command of the New Testament. It's the same Holy Spirit. He is consistent. He is one with himself. He's not schizophrenic. If you as a Christian make it your goal, like right now, Holy Spirit, what do you want me to think? What do you want me to feel? What do you want me to do? And he's going to say, I want you to listen to the Word of God and follow along in the Bible and let me emphasize what is truth. And if that nutcase up there says something that isn't true, I'm going to tell you, be listening. And then I want you to take it out. And I want you to live it in your life. Okay, that's what he's saying. Listen to him. And if you'll go through life, what should I do? What should I feel? What do I need to think? That's your emphasis. While continuing to read all portions, all portions of the scripture, your life won't be bondage because the Holy Spirit in in Romans 5 pours out the love of God in us. He causes us to love God. Our want to changes. Yes, we're still reading all the portions of the Bible. He's not going to lead us against the law. He's going to help us to love God, and that's going to power our Christian life. Whole different approach. Say, Jeff, some folks, okay, you said some of us maybe feel bondage in our Christian life, some legalistic teaching, some emphasizing the wrong thing. They're not following the leading of the Spirit. 
What's the third thing? Well, you may not be saved at all. And it's evidenced by your performance mentality to salvation. If you have a a performance mentality toward salvation, then you're not saved. You say, the Christian life feels like bondage to me. I was unsaved and heard about religion and someone told me about repentance. And by the way, you have to repent to get saved. But someone told me about repentance and and I've been trying to to clean my act up and earn my way to heaven ever since. Well, no wonder you feel bondage because you are still living in the slavery of sin trying to keep these rules and you're extremely frustrated and you have no chance because your spirit's still dead. It's impossible. But I want us to delight in adoption this morning. We could probably just pause and say, what does adoption, spiritual adoption mean? And you could write down and say, well, let's just all put our mind together, something that we would do on a Wednesday night. What does that mean? And we may come up with a dozen different things. I don't think you guys want me preaching a dozen points, okay? You have four. Can we hit them? And that'll be the body, the main part of our message on this second. What does it mean? Number one, delight in this. If you're a Christian, delight in being a Christian because you were chosen and loved. If you're a Christian, the spirit of adoption, the Holy Spirit in you, one of the things he does, he indwells you. He gives you life. He changes you. He leads you. And right now, he should lead you into confirming and going deeper into this idea that he seals your adoption. How does he do this? He lets you know this morning that you, so if you're a Christian, you should know because I've been adopted. That is proof and evidence. I am loved by God. I was chosen by God. You see Ephesians chapter 1. I'm going to make my way over there to match where you guys are at. Ephesians chapter 1. Look what Paul told them, the Ephesian church. Don't let this go lightly. Verse 3 of chapter 1, Ephesians. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ. That's where the blessings are. That's where you want to live, guys, in Christ. Blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. All the best blessings, all the blessings of God are in Christ. That's where you need to live. Watch verse 4. I didn't write this. This is the Bible. This isn't the only place. This is one of several. Verse 4. Even as He chose us in Him, in Christ, when? Before the foundation of the world. You say, I chose God. I chose Christ. Let me tell you something. You put your faith in Christ X amount of months, years ago, for me, 30 some years ago. Why? Because He chose me before the foundation of the world. Verse 4. Even as He chose us. We're talking about adoption here. He chose us. We didn't choose Erica and Jonathan. God chose them for us. Here they come. Get ready. <laughs> this is what, what's it going to be like. And now we know. But verse number four is a whole other ballgame. Even as he chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world. Why? That we should be holy and blameless before him. That's why he chose us. Watch verse five. The end of verse four, kind of tricky. Where do those two words, in love, do they finish verse four? Do they start verse five? Uh, the ESV has chosen the interpretation where it begins verse 5 watch this in 
love. Christian, hear this. In love, he predestined us for adoption. In love, he predestined, predetermined a destination that you'd reach it. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Why? How? According to the purpose of his will. So why was it his will? It wasn't your will to come to Christ. You came to Christ. You put your faith in Christ when you did because he had chosen you. Verse 5. I know this is getting real. Oh, here it goes. He's getting all shaky up there on us. Just let the Bible say what it says. Don't complicate it. It's too complicated already for me to understand completely. So I've just determined I'm going to let it say what it says. Keep it real simple. Keep it real literal. The Bible says in verse 5. He predestined us for adoption of sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. To the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In other words, if you study that out, the main thing is not your adoption. The main thing is that through eternity everyone will know that God is a gracious God. And he willed to show his grace by calling you to himself. It's been proven. I think this is very accurate. We get... Our idea of God is strongly influenced from our Father. That's probably true of you. Your view of God this morning has been strongly influenced by your earthly Father. If you're here this morning, this may be somebody's attitude. Oh yeah, I believe in Him. I believe in God. He's out there. He's distant. And He's not involved in my life. He's out there somewhere. Yeah, I hear He's even in the same hometown. I don't think I've ever met Him though. And that's their attitude toward God because that's their experience of an earthly father. Others is way on the other extreme. It's this. Oh, yeah, God, he's my buddy. And I'm going to tell you, that's not a healthy view. God is not your buddy, but they think that because earthly dad was a buddy. Dad never disciplined them. Dad, there was no reverence. There was no authority figure. Maybe dad's just a big kid himself. You know, or maybe dad feels a strain and when I'm with dad, he really works hard to make sure that I like him and so we're buddies. And that may be somebody here this morning. But I'm about to tell another group that's here, I don't know who you are, but this is true. Some, even some of you, really struggle with the idea of God being your father and here's why. So God's our father. And your view of God is this, a a being that is real and powerful and he's perpetually angry at me and he hates me and he's waiting. And this is somebody, this is maybe you. He's waiting at any time. Just he's looking for me to mess up. And boy, when I do, he's going to let me have it. It's the old, when your father gets home, you're going to get it. Because that's what you grew up under. That's your earthly father. And so your idea toward God is you spend all your time trying to do good enough and perform well enough so that he'll... Let you slide. You might even make him happy one time. But that's very thin ice. At any moment, he could go off. Can I tell you guys something? Let me read Psalm 103. Let me tell you what the Bible says. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities them that fear him. The idea there is a father has compassion for his children, so the the Lord has compassion for them that fear him. I remember when we brought Erica home. Well, I wasn't ready. I mean, we're not having any more kids. If we had a new one today, I'd feel like I'm not ready. And we've done it twice now. 
One's 19, and Erica's, Jonathan's 19, and Erica's 21. I remember when we brought Erica home, we lived over on Whitner Street, and I particularly remember one time she was in a crib, back in a little bedroom. Uh, I think it was a little Noah's Ark theme, little bumper and all this stuff. And I remember her laying on her stomach, and her head was turned like this, and she was just a brand-new little infant. And finally she got where she was really trying to raise her head. I, I call it kind of the turtle phase. You know, it's kind of like the struggling. And I could tell what she wanted was to just kind of look over this way. But it was a struggle, and she finally get here and... Boom, just, you know, the head's way oversized for that, and the neck muscles and all that. And finally, it's like, mm, mm, mm. I'm telling you what, I, I wanted to run in there. I got fit. She wanted to roll over. Let me just do it. Let's just go do You want to roll over? Let me just do it for you. But that wouldn't be good because the struggle creates the strength. It's a good thing. Let them struggle. Christian, can I tell you something? If ever an earthly, adoptive, parent loved if ever they did and some of you say I love my adopted child as much just as much as a natural I promise I have that if ever an earthly father or mother loved mark it down our heavenly father loves you he loves you you need to know that he loves you look at Ephesians chapter 2 it's just one chapter over how loving is our father you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked this is our life. You were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. Everybody out there living the same way, selfishly and sinfully, following the prince of the power of the air. There's a reference to the devil. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. That's where we live. We were sons of disobedience, among whom we all lived in the passions of our flesh, that sinful nature that we have, the passions, desires of our body, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. I want you all to know this this morning. God is so gracious that when he decided to adopt his children, he went to the very muck-ridden fields of sin, found us in our slavery to sin, found Jeff Barlett's slavery, couldn't stop, Loving, addicted to sin. And God said, I'm going to save that one right there. That's going to be my child. Yeah, but it's going to cost a high price. I know, but I love enough. I'm going to pay the highest of prices to save him and you. You say, what's that high price? Son, you will die. I love them so much that you, my only begotten son, you will die and your blood will be the price to save that person. And our God is so infinite now that when you want to talk to him, you could not have more attention of his than if you were the only child of God. God is infinite. He is your father. I hope it never happens. I've heard of it. It's possible for earthly fathers to get so mad at an earthly child that they quote-unquote disown that child. But I promise you, the thought in Romans 8 is of security. Our Heavenly Father who adopted us says, I don't want you to live with fear. Uh-oh, what I did, I wonder if that cost me. I wonder, do I need to get saved again? Can I tell you something? You never get saved again. You get saved you get born again. You never get born again and again and again. You get born again. Our, our Heavenly Father never disowns us. We have the spirit of adoption. Number two. It means we have access. We have access. Would you look at verse 15 again? For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Abba, Emma, right? Abba, Emma, Aramaic little, little bitty children, little bitty toddlers, little bitty babies. Abba, Abba, 
Daddy, Papa. And I know some people hear that and say, that's too familiar. That's disrespectful to God. No one should call God Abba. Jesus did in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus cries in the Garden of Gethsemane, knowing what's coming. Just hours away, what would begin? He actually prays to his heavenly father, to his pater, paternal father. And he also uses this Aramaic term like a little child. Emma would be mom. Emma! Abba! Jesus calls out to the heavenly father, Abba. If there's any other way, let this cup pass. This cup's bitter. I don't want to do this. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done write this down all who receive Christ that's you include yourself all who receive Christ as Savior become full sons and daughters of God you have immediate access immediate access and this is what the Holy Spirit I hope you know what I'm talking about I hope this is just validating what you already know to be true the Holy Spirit teaches us you can call God your heavenly father. You can call God your papa, your abba. This is not your daddy. I mean, you call him your daddy. This is not disrespectful. This just means a term of love. It is not, you're still the father. You're still the authority. But we're familiar. I know you. I'm not way on the outside. I'm your child. The Jews of that day literally would not even say the name of God for fear of taking his name in vain. Jesus comes along and tells us, oh, call him Abba. Call God, the attitude, your papa, father, daddy. What does that mean? What do we do? What does Abba mean? Sometimes it's this. The Spirit helps us to cry out. Have you ever been here? Abba, I need some help. Have you ever been there? I need help. Father, I need help. Or, Father, look. Look what you did. This is awesome. Abba, look. Or, these aren't fun days, but I've been there. Abba, where are you? Where are you? Somebody here this morning, that, that, that describes you. That's your prayer life. Where are you? And somebody else, this is you. I need your help. And some others of you are like, yes. Father, you're so good. Look at all the good things you're doing. The Holy Spirit helps us cry those prayers. Think about millionaires. I said something back in like September, October. They're millionaires and they're over a lot of people and they have a lot of authority. But you know that millionaires around here can't get a 15-minute phone call with the CEO of a Fortune 500 company. Why? Because they're the CEO of a Fortune 500 company and 15 minutes is very valuable. And you're not going, hey, can I get a call? I need to talk to the guy at Coca-Cola there in Atlanta. Uh, who are you? Yeah, I'm a guy up here and I live over here and I've got several million dollars and I've got a plant and I have 150 workers under me. Uh, yeah, do you have an appointment? Uh, no, I'd like to get one. I don't think so. Thank you. Click. They're not getting in. But that CEO's little child has dad's number on the cell phone. He has direct access. When he goes into the, the large building, the secretary says, Hey, buddy, good morning. Hey, he walks right by. Guys, I'm trying to tell you, if you're a Christian, you are a child of God. You literally walk right by. What I want to get, write this down. Angels are more powerful than we are, far more powerful in this life. We were created lower than them. They live in heaven. They have access to God. Get this. They have no sin. You have sin. You don't live in heaven. They're more powerful. We're weaker. But I'm telling you, just like what I described, that little child going right by all the other. The millionaire can't get an appointment. Here comes a little boy. He sees a whole side of dad the rest of the world never sees. They see CEO dad. He sees dad. I'm thinking of the old Kennedy videos. You remember? 
There's Kennedy in the Senate, and there's Kennedy making the speeches, and there's Kennedy dealing with the Russians, and you see the old footage of him throwing them and out on the beach and throwing the football. Yeah, that's his children. Listen, guys, that's you. The king of the universe, you have access to him. We go directly past the angels to the very throne of God as his children. Third thought this morning. If this adoption thing is what we think it is, here's what it means. Christian, you are royalty. You're royalty. Why? Because of all the kings who've ever lived, our father is the king of all the kings. And if he's your adoptive father and you're his adoptive child, you are royalty. I'm not going to spend long on this point, but I hope you will dial it in. Somebody needs to hear this. You are the king's kid. There may be a young person here, you're a teenager, and you know tomorrow morning the other kids at school, in middle school or high school, there's a little group and they say something about you. Listen carefully. In time, it'll come out who you really are and who they are. You're the king's kid. You need, to, you need to realize that. Adult, sometimes we tell ourselves lies in difficult, low times and in dark places. We tell ourselves lies. We forget who we are and we start believing the lies. I want to tell you, if you've ever put your faith in Christ one time, those are lies. And the reality is, though you've forgotten it, you don't understand it, you are the child of God. Robes are waiting. Royal robes are waiting on you and you will be wearing them and they're way better than anything the angels are wearing today. You're the king's kid. I believe this with all my heart. You say, Jeff, when the Bible talks about devils and demons and all those things, you believe that? I absolutely do. They might be here this morning trying to make you sleepy, trying to make you think, I don't even want to say it, think about something else that most people start thinking about at noon. Don't go there. Shouldn't have done that. Say, Jeff, you think they're real? Oh, they're real. Some of them are at large roaming around in their own assignment. Some of them are actually living inside of other human beings. And I can't tell you who all those people are. Here's all I'll tell you. Listen carefully. Whether they're roaming at large on an assignment or in someone else, you may not know they're in that person, but I'll promise you, in that per- and the person they're in may not know who you are, but that demon knows who you are immediately. And they won't like you, but they recognize, okay, easy, that's one of them. And that's you. And that's me. And you're very powerful. Because you're royalty, that means angels. I know they are here this morning. And if we could see one angel, we would probably be tempted to worship it. Because they're so much grander and so much more powerful and so much more beautiful than we are now. Here's what I'm telling you. They could do great damage if given permission by the Father. But they're not going to harm you. They're not going to hurt you. Here's what I'm telling you. They stand ready to serve you at a moment's notice by the Father's command because you are the king's kid. This is real. This is not a game. And lastly, the fourth thing. If all of this is true, what does it mean? It means we are family. It means we're family. You're the king's kid. You're royalty. You're loved. You've been chosen means you have access where others don't. A lot of people are praying prayers today. Only Christians have real access to the throne of God. What adoption means is that we are brothers and sisters. I don't know. 
I'm not saying everyone in here is a brother and sister. What I'm telling you is if you've ever put your faith in Christ, you're my brother or sister for eternity. God has no grandchildren. God only has one only begotten Son of God by nature, eternal Son of God, Jesus, who's the Christ, the Son of God, and He has adopted children. He does not have grandchildren. That's it. That's the two categories that exist. So here's what that means. Men, listen, men, men. If your wife is a Christian, you say, I'm not a Christian, but my wife is. Be careful how you treat her. She's the king's daughter. Wives, if your husband is a Christian, treat him right. He's kind of a big deal. He is a big deal in eternity. If your children, both of my children are Christians, you know what that means? Parents, careful how you treat them. God has entrusted you with his prized possession. Treat them right. Anyone who's going to mistreat them is going to answer to God, especially to God. Treat them correctly. It's an assignment. You're a a steward. You've been given an opportunity to minister to the king's kids. They've been put into your care. By the way, they may, she may, Your children may be over you in the next life. Treat them right. What does this mean? Last thought for you today. Since we're family, it means we don't have ranks on earth based on our ability. Hey, that guy or that lady, they have a very public gift and everyone comes and they see them. And this person over here, uh, their spiritual gift is really behind the scenes. And so that one there outranks that one over there. No, they do not. Oh, I agree in the next life there will be ranks and there will be powers and, 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 and authorities that are given, but it's based on this life. There's no ranks. There's no, that's a high-ranking elite Christian and this down here is a low-ranking. Wrong. What does it mean? I hope you taste this this morning. It means we should share each other's joy. Why? Because we're brothers and sisters. When something good happens to my brother, I'm going to tell you from my heart. I don't get jealous. I'm like, oh, really? That's good. You're going where? Oh, that's great. Have a great time. Oh, you got a new what? That's wonderful. Can I borrow it? I'm not jealous. We joy. We take joy with each other. If you're sitting there and you're like, man, I'm envious and I wish I had it and I hate that day. and Check your heart. Something's wrong. These are our family. But it also means this. If it means anything, listen. We share each other's burdens and hurts. We should, because we're family. We share the the family responsibility, and I want y'all to help me. What is our family responsibility? I'm going to give the word the. You guys supply two words for me. The family's responsibility is the, Matthew 28. What is it? Two words. G-C, the Great Commission. You're like, yeah, Jeff, you need to get busy about the Great Commission. You may have a different gift than I have, and I may have a different gift than you have. You may have a different specific assignment than I have, but all, listen, this is important. All of us have the same family responsibility. You have a responsibility to be about the business of the Great Commission. I close with this. If you're a Christian, I hope you take great comfort in knowing who you are. I hope you live like that. But I wonder, do we live like that? Think of those two boys over in London. Do you think they grew up knowing they were royal? Think they knew that? I'd say, oh, absolutely, they knew they were. That being royal comes with a responsibility, an awareness. 
Listen carefully, guys. We don't earn our place in the family by how we live, but because we're in the family should affect how we live. I need to emphasize that. You don't earn your way in the family. I'm going to live so I can be part of God's family. No, you're either in the family or you're out of the family. If you're in the family, it affects how you live. I'll go as far as to say every one of us who is a Christian and even those who claim to be a Christian, you are affecting other people's opinion of the King of God based on your life. So I want to ask you, last month, what have you influenced people to think about God at work? You say, well, they know I'm a Christian at work. How have you been influenced? In school, on that team, on Saturday night, at the tailgate yesterday. Does everyone who knows that you're a Christian on the team, in the class, in your family, at work, at the tailgate, on Saturday night, is this their conclusion? Oh yeah, they're a Christian, but I'm telling you, I don't see a lick of difference between them and everybody else. Then you're making God look bad. I remember growing up, honestly, this would happen. I never wanted anyone to say this or even think this. I ne- around Weaverville and Asheville, North Carolina. I never wanted anyone to say, hey, isn't that Charles's boy? Yeah. That's, the, yeah. That's his youngest. What's his name? I don't know. But yeah, that is Charles's boy. I wonder if he knows. I never wanted that. I never wanted word to get back. My dad had to get on to me one time about something I was doing in school. To this day, I still think I had some right things about what I was doing. But he got a call from my uncle who was the pastor of the church that had the Christian school. My uncle Lewis called my dad and my dad called me, hey, what's going on over there at the school? What? I'm just, I almost started to defend and I realized like, mm-mm, mm-mm. let's do what he says. That's your father. And he doesn't like how I'm making, how I'm acting. Christian, do you know who you are? Do you know who you are? Do you live like it? You're loved and chosen. You have access. You have access to the very throne of God that other people do not have. You are royalty, and we're family. Would you bow your head this morning? In a moment, our worship team is going to lead us in a song. Just before they do, I've got to ask you. I started the message by saying, would you check your life by the scriptures? And I'm going to finish there today. Do you have clear and certain signs in your life of God's spirit and his evidence that he's in you? Do you have clear evidence in your life? Heads bowed, eyes closed, no one looking, no one, you know, being nosy about anyone else. This is an opportunity for us. I check myself this week. I do. I check myself before I ask you guys these questions. Do you sense him indwelling you? Do you sense the Holy Spirit is changing you, making you more like Christ? It's a process. It takes our life. It's never completed in this life, but you should be sensing. Yes, he is pointing out my sin and making me hate my sin. And he's bringing about, you know, he's, he's, he's feeding my spirit and We're working together, the Spirit and I, and we're choking out sin. We're trying to kill sin in my life. It's a process. It's a battle. And I don't win all the battles, but oh, I know what's going on in my life. Do you sense the Holy Spirit leading you? 
Does you sense him? He gives, he gives conviction of sin. He causes the scriptures to come alive. He prompts you to do Bible actions in your life. You say, I know I have the leading of the Spirit. Then I would also ask, do you have the spirit of adoption? Do you know, do you sense that you can cry to the Father, Abba, Father? Lord, I don't know why, but I know you love me so much. You chose me long before I ever set my faith in Christ. Lord, I know that I have access by faith through Christ to you. And Lord, I'm going to take your word for it. I am royalty today. And Lord, these people are my brothers and sisters. And we have the family responsibility. If you're here this morning, you say, Jeff, none of those things are true. Life is bondage. I'm trying to be good enough to please God. And I just don't feel like I'm doing it. Let me tell you, you're right. You can never be good enough. Just before we sing, I'm going to read three verses out of John. Listen. He, John 1.10, you've heard of John 3.16, John 1.10. He was in the world, Jesus was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. God lived among man, they had no clue who was there. Verse 11, he came to his own, meaning he came to mankind. He became one of us, he came to his own. And his own people, what it means there is the Jews. His own people did not receive him. He was a Jew. He's their king. He's their Messiah, the one that was promised. 300 prophecies are fulfilled in Jesus. He came as a human being, as a Jew. He came to his own. His own people did not receive him. But listen to verse 12. But to all who did receive him. So what do I have to do to become a Christian, to get this adoption in my life? Verse 12, to all who did receive, that's all you do, receive. To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, here's what God's word says, he gave the right to become children of God. I'm going to read it one more time. So Jeff, what does this mean? What I'm telling you, if you have no signs of the Holy Spirit in your life, if you will hear just verse 12 of John chapter 1 this morning, and you will put your faith and trust in what it says then you'll be a Christian. Say, right, what what, what do I have to pray with you, Jeff? I'm telling you, if you do what verse 12 says in that seat, you immediately become adopted by God. How's it happen? Verse 12, to all, God promises, God's word, to all who did receive him. Jesus is saying, receive me, take me. I've paid for all your sins on the cross. I'm enough. I've paid for all your sin. You don't have to pay for any of them because you can't. And you had a lot of sin. But I paid every last drop to all who did receive him, who believed in his name. He gave the right. He gave the right to become children of God. Father, I told a young man Wednesday and you were there. I sure can't save him. Lord, I can't save anybody here today. Lord, I'm, I'm fearful. There are several people this morning that are not part of the family. But Lord, maybe, maybe in your grace, you have willed it that today, today, September 24th, that they had put their faith in Christ. Lord, would you let that happen? Only you can do it. Lord, they have no chance on their own. Lord, I know it's urgent. 
This is not something they need to do tomorrow, God. Help them to do it today. Help them to hear what you said in John, if they will right now. Lord, right now, let them hear me talking to you. And let that little portion of Scripture spark faith in them so that they believe. They receive Christ because they believe in His name. Let them do it. Lord, right now in their seat, just waken their dead spirit. Let them have a conversation with you. Lord, let them acknowledge that they are sinners. Let them confess. Would you let them receive Jesus Christ and believe in His name? Lord, thank you for adopting me in 1979 in time and space. Fulfilling what you willed in eternity past before the foundation of the world. Lord, thank you that everything we looked at in the scriptures this morning are true. And I tried to explain it and I don't even understand what what all you're going to do. It's over my head. It's too much. Lord, I pray that I will live like it today. In the coming days of this week, God, live like one of your kids. Taking advantage of my access to you, knowing that you love me. Would you do the same for my brothers?